He is risen. We could just stand here and say that for the next 20 minutes, and that would be okay. God's presence has been powerful here already this morning. I don't even have to preach, but I will. I'm not going to keep you long. I know it's Easter Sunday. Families are gathering together. But it is a blessing and a privilege to be able to stand here before you this morning on this Resurrection Sunday and share the Word of God with you. Let's pray together for a moment if we, if we can. Father, we thank you again for all that you're doing and all that's happening here this morning. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your presence. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to, to speak and to move and to minister to those who are gathered here today. Have your way today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The flowering cross, the beautiful flowers on this cross uh, remind me that not too far from here, just about 10 miles away, and about 20 minutes is one of the most beautiful places you could visit in our area and in the country and maybe even the world. And those of you who have gone and are members of Longwood Gardens, I think, would agree with that. The beauty of that place, the flowers, the plants, the trees, the incredible landscaping, the fountains, just make it a spectacular place to visit. I remember many years ago, my family and I took my aunt who was visiting from Italy to Longwood Gardens to visit there. And as we walked around the gardens and she took in all that beauty, I remember she said in Italian, e come il paradiso. It's like paradise. It's like paradise. When we see the term paradise, we think of several different things, perhaps in the scripture, but one of the things that we would think of would be the place where it all started for man. After God created the heavens and the earth and everything that was in them, he finally created man. It says in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And in the next chapter of Genesis 2 and verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, where he put the man whom he had formed. God was the original gardener. God was the original gardener. Eden was the first garden. Eden literally means delight. You would have to think that the beauty of the garden that God planted in Eden must surely have been even more spectacular than Longwood Gardens on its best day. And the man and the woman who they whom he had created and planted in the garden as well, placed in the garden, had everything that they could want, everything that they need. And they were given permission by their creator to eat the fruit of any tree in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. While you work in your garden this spring, cultivating and planting, it may be that some of you may encounter 
a little snake crawling in your garden. Some of you encountering that snake will take off in the other direction. But those little garden snakes are harmless. In that first garden in Eden, there was a snake also, a serpent, and he was anything but harmless because that serpent had been possessed by Satan himself. Satan, the fallen angel, the one who was an archangel of God and rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven with one-third of the other angels who followed him. He He possessed that snake, that serpent. He approached the woman and tempted her to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had forbade them to eat from. Satan was cast out of heaven for aspiring to be like God, for wanting to usurp his authority, and he attempted Adam and Eve to do the same. And she ate, and she gave the fruit to her husband, and he ate. And the beauty and the perfection of God's creation was now tainted. The garden of delight was blighted by sin and ultimately death entered the world. In Genesis chapter 3, we read not only about the fall of man in this account, but we get the first glimpse of God's rescue and restoration plan. Genesis 3.15 says this, God pronounced the curse on the serpent, And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first hint that the seed of woman will bring about redemption to mankind. Eve's words at the birth of her son Cain seem to indicate that she thought that her firstborn was going to be the one who would bring redemption. God, with God's help, I've brought forth a man. I understand that it could also be translated, I've got him. I've got the one. I've given birth to the one who will bring redemption. She couldn't have been more wrong. Cain just perpetuated sin and was the first murderer killing his brother Abel. It would be many centuries before that promise would be fulfilled. Nearly the whole of the Old Testament points toward it. And in the fullness of time, God sends his son. God created the first man and placed him in the Garden of Delight in Eden. It's a beautiful garden. He brings his son into the world, corrupted by the sin of Adam. And he's born in the filth of a stable in Bethlehem. Jesus grows, the scripture tells us in wisdom and stature and favor with men. And at around age age 30, he begins the ministry that will fulfill the purpose for which he was called. He begins preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. He teaches throughout Israel like no other teacher before him and none after him. He heals, he delivers people from demonic oppression and possession and performs miracles. But all along the way, that three-year earthly ministry was headed toward a stunning conclusion. We just observed it last week. He enters Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And it's there that God uses the evil of men 
to bring about his plan of redemption. He uses the jealousy and corruption of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law who felt threatened by Jesus and had their authority threatened by him. He used the authority of Rome as uh, demonstrated by Pontius Pilate. He used the betrayal of one of his own disciples, namely Judas, and even the mob mentality of some of those who had gathered in Jerusalem. All these people, the evil of men, were used by God to accomplish his purpose. Jesus was not just a great prophet and a great teacher and not just a miracle worker. He was the fulfillment of that Genesis 3 promise and all the other Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the one who would redeem men the one who would break the curse of sin and death. He would go to the cross to be, as the prophet Isaiah wrote, wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. On the night he is arrested by the authorities, we see another garden come into play in the redemption story. First we saw the Garden of Eden where man fell, the Garden of Delight. Now we see another garden come into the story. Jesus faces the pending cross alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means oil press. In the place of Gethsemane, Jesus cries out to the Father under the press of the weight of the sin of all mankind. Mark's Gospel in the 14th chapter and 36th verse records the words of Jesus as do the other Gospels. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The overwhelming weight of the burden of the sin of man resting on Jesus causes a phenomenal reaction called hematidrosis. He literally begins, John tells us in his gospel, to sweat drops of blood. In the abundance of Eden, in the garden of delight, man falls by the disobedience of his forebearer Adam, who succumbed to the temptation of the enemy. In the dark night of Gethsemane, the second Adam, as the Apostle Paul calls him, Jesus. The second Adam, pressed to the point of sweating drops of blood, overcomes in the battle for redemption by submitting to the will of the Father and the plan of God. Hours later, he hangs on a cross between heaven and earth. On the Roman cross, he takes the sin of man upon himself to reconcile man to God, something only he could do. And with his last breath, he cries out, It is finished. It is finished. These three words imply so much. They actually are translated from one Greek word, tetelestai. 
That Greek word is rich in meaning, and so much of its meaning applies to this passage, to this, this point of Jesus' crucifixion. But primarily with this word, Jesus was saying this, the penalty for sin has been paid. It's finished. He's saying nothing else but the blood of Jesus is required. It is finished. There's nothing to add to it. He's saying God's justice has been satisfied. It's finished. There's yet another garden that enters salvation's story, and we read in it about it in John's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning in the 38th verse. After these things, the crucifixion of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, Ask Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gives him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths, cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, Jesus was laid there. Yet another garden enters the story. Jesus was laid there, but we know that that's not the end of the story. We celebrate today. We celebrate his resurrection. After the Sabbath, Matthew tells us in the 28th chapter, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. He has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. A tomb, a grave, is often referred to as a final resting place. When the followers of Jesus laid his body in the garden tomb, they didn't know what would happen on the third day. We heard it in the narration 
this morning. There was disillusionment. There was uncertainty. There was confusion. We read about it in Luke's gospel in the 24th chapter as two of his disciples are walking along on the road to Emmaus and discussing what just took place in Jerusalem. Disillusioned because they thought this was the Messiah, not knowing that the one that they were speaking to was the risen Christ himself. And he sits down with them and he tells them everything from the time of Moses to the time of his birth and death and resurrection and how he fulfilled it, the prophecy and the promise of God. That wasn't his final resting place. In Eden, the Garden of Delight, we saw or see man fall from life to death. And in the garden tomb, we see man go from death to life. As the crucified one becomes the risen king. And he is still that today. And because he lives, we too shall live if we believe and trust in his finished work. Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Since he overcame death, sin, death, and the grave, we too will do the same if we know him and trust in him. Through Jesus, we've been given the gift of eternal life. Trusting and believing in him promises that we will be with him forever. He said, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. If you're here today on this Easter Sunday, because it's Easter Sunday and that's what you normally do each year, We're glad you're here. We really are. If you're a skeptic, maybe you've been here numerous times, but you've never embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're glad you're here today. But hear this. What we celebrate here today is not just a story. It's not just a story. It's not just an allegory for the coming of spring or new life. It's his story. Emphasis on H-I-S. It's his story. God's story. Jesus' story. It's not fiction, it's fact. The evidence for the resurrection is substantial, to say the least. We could next take the next two hours or more speaking about it. But just a couple comments. If you're a skeptic, theologian named Matt Perman, writing for a website called Desiring God, wrote this. Virtually all scholars who deal with the resurrection, whatever their school of thought, whether they 
whether conservative or more liberal in their thinking, assent to these three truths. One, the tomb in which Jesus was buried was discovered empty by a group of women on the Sunday following the crucifixion. Two, Jesus' disciples disciples had real experiences with the one whom they believed was the risen Christ. And three, as a result of the preaching of these disciples, which had the resurrection as its center, the Christian church was established and grew. Further says this on the theory that Jesus' body was stolen, which is one which has been perpetuated through the centuries. And you know where it started. Read the Gospel of Matthew in the 28th chapter, I believe. It started with the religious leaders. He says this, the Jews or Romans had no motive to steal the body. They wanted to suppress Christianity, not encourage it by providing it with an empty tomb. The disciples would have no motive either because of their preaching on the resurrection. Because of that, they were beaten, they were killed, and persecuted. Every one of those 12 disciples, save one, the Apostle John, met a martyr's death. You don't die for something you don't believe in. You don't die for a lie. Willingly. Why would they go through all of this for a deliberate lie? No serious scholars hold to any of these theories today. What explanation, then, do the critics offer you, you may ask? And then he quotes quotes William Lane Craig, a great apologist for the Christian faith, who says, They are self-confessedly without any explanation to offer. There is simply no plausible explanation today to account for Jesus' tomb being empty. If we deny the resurrection of Jesus, we are left with an inexplicable mystery. The resurrection of Jesus, Perman says, is not just the best explanation of the empty tomb. It's the only explanation in town. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. As we close today, I would like to invite you all to just bow your heads. Maybe you've been here many times, maybe for years, but you've never come to a place where you've placed your faith in the living, risen Savior. This cross that we so beautifully adorn with flowers is something that is so important to our faith. And yet, it's empty. We don't worship the cross. The tomb where Jesus lay, many of our folks visited recently in Israel and saw it. It's empty. We don't worship a cross. We don't worship an empty tomb. We worship the risen, living Christ. So today, if you have never received by faith that Jesus 
who hung on the cross for your sins and for mine to reconcile us to the Father, to give us the gift of eternal life. I would invite you to pray and ask him to come, to take residence in your own heart. Just a simple prayer like this. Father, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Holy Spirit, I need you. I recognize that I am separated by sin from you, God. I know that only Jesus can save me from my sin and give me eternal life. And today, I receive that gift of eternal life by faith, confessing my sins, asking for forgiveness, and receiving Jesus into my heart. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.